Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. I'm Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at Housing Wire, here with the latest episode of the Housing Wire Daily Podcast. On Mondays, my guest is always Housing Wire Lead Analyst Logan Motoshami, so we can cover the latest economic news. But before we dive in, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Since 2015, Finance of America Mortgage and their skilled, award-winning mortgage advisors have helped over 450,000 customers closing more than $134 billion in loan volume. Licensed in all 50 states, plus Washington, D.C., Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands, Finance of America Mortgage is backed by best-in-class lending technology and a wide range of innovative mortgage products that can help turn any borrower into a customer for life. Want to join an award-winning team and evaluate your business? Visit www.joinfamtoday.com forward slash housing wire. To learn more, Finance of America Mortgage LLC is licensed nationwide. Equal housing opportunity. NMLS ID number 1771. www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Equal opportunity employer. Okay, we are ready to go. Logan, welcome back to the podcast. It is great to be here. And wow, do we have a lot to talk about. We have so much to talk about. Okay, so last week, um, this coming out on, on, on Monday, so last week, the the Dallas Fed blew up stuff on, on social. I don't know about yours. I'm sure yours was worse than mine uh, because it said it had a headline that had the word housing bubble in it. So tell us, tell us about this saga, please. Yes. Um, so as soon as the Dallas Fed came out, uh, as always, if you use the term housing bubble, especially when prices are accelerating, that is going to generate a lot of discussion. And of course, you know, when I, when I read the uh, uh, article and the data points, I was like, wow, these people are actually more calm than I am. Um, so I was like, you know, th- it doesn't read off like a housing bubble is like evident. All they are doing is basically saying that Home prices are accelerating uh, at, at an unhealthy rate. Again, for me, it's as always, we are in a savagely unhealthy housing market. So I think the title was a little bit misleading to the actual context of it. So I actually had no problem whatsoever with what the Dallas Fed's uh, data was showing. They even made it clear that this wasn't the marketplace uh, that we saw from, uh, you know, kind of 2005 to 2008. There was no excessive leverage borrowing, uh, people weren't speculating on housing. It's just that home price growth is too hot. And again, been my theme for some time now, right? Uh, especially early in uh, 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 in January of 2021, we have to worry about home prices accelerating uh, too much. So I, I didn't have any disagreements with their models or how they were describing it. I think the headline is it was driven to get people to read. And then, of course, everyone shares it out and, and nobody actually reads the report because that's that's my impersonation or what, that's what I took from it, from what people are asking me. I think that's a really great read. I, I felt the same way. I was like, I don't know that the headline was justified by what they were uh, by, by the data. And then you wrote a great piece for us um, called 
you know, is the Dallas Fed right to label this a housing bubble? And then, you know, the subhead was like, no. So give us your take on why. So whether it's the Dallas Fed or other people, we are seeing bubble talk everywhere. And that is because we do have huge home price growth. So you would not dispute. I mean, this has been one of your things. But tell us why that doesn't mean this is a bubble. So, you know, everyone has their own economic models, especially for home price growth. Uh, for me, specifically for this unique five-year period in years 2020 to 2024, I've, I've said max cumulative home price growth of 23%. If we go over 23%, uh, uh, then it's an unhealthy market. Unfortunately, it happened in two years. So my downgrading of the housing market in terms from unhealthy to savagely is pretty much this, uh, what the Dallas Fed is talking about. I mean, I need home prices to be flat to negative this year, next year, and the year, and the year after for, it, for my model to, to, to stay in line. And it's not happening. Inventory got worse this year. We're seeing double-digit declines every single uh, week this year uh, compared to last year. So, uh, But if, if I'm to say that housing is in a bubble, and, I, and, and honestly, I, and I mean this with, with, with all intentions, Bubble talk is lazy talk, right? It's just a way to garner attention. We've had the housing bubble boys 2.0 since 2012. And home prices have gone up 108% since that level. They would need home prices to come all the way back down to 2012 levels to justify 11 years of trolling the housing market, right? So if I say housing's in a bubble, if I don't show you exactly when the bubble started and why prices are going to get back to that point, then I'm doing the same thing that everyone else has done for 11 years. And they've all been wrong. I mean, not like a, a minor whiff, like historically, the housing bubble boys 2.0, the forbearance crash bros, whatever we want to call them, they have had the most epic whiff in, in US history. So that's why bubble talk is lazy talk, especially if you don't have speculation. And I think to me, it's when, when, if you look at the history of bubbles going back four or 500 years, what you see is demand really take off so much that something is going to crack and that demand is going to collapse uh, in a very short amount of time. And this is why I show the purchase application data charts from the Mortgage Banking Association. Boy, it, our market from 2012 to 2022 looks nothing like what we saw from 2002 to 2005. In fact, Purchase application data right now, even though it was positive week to week by 1%, is nowhere even close to two, 2002 levels. So uh, again, going with the bubble talk is lazy talk. If you say the word bubble, you got to show where, where, when it started, prices are going to get back there and show the speculative demand curve. Uh, e even, if you, even if you made an assumption that uh, BlackRock is buying all the homes in America and as soon as they leave the whole, you have to adjust it to where you think sales trends are going to go. And I think that's the big mistake that a lot of housing crash people have done. They never, they never forecast sales, so they should basically say the same thing over and over again. So you need to, to adjust your bubble talk to where you think prices are going and where demand is going. And most professional people don't do that. Uh, so uh, uh, it's again, it's, it, we live in a day after uh, post-2008 where professional grifting of housing is an effective business model. And if you just say the word bubble, it's going to garnish a lot of tension, even if the context, which the Dallas Fed article was, wasn't talking about the housing bubble from 2002 to 2008. They really make it clear. It's just price growth is accelerating 
my thing too, but you don't hear me saying housing is a bubble, right? Because there are certain rules when you use bubble talk. Okay, well, let's let's talk about that. So we know home prices have gone up crazy high. Um, now, now we're having rising interest rates, right? So you even said we need rising interest rates to cool off the housing market. So what do you mean by that versus a bubble? So in, in other words, like, you know, you're, if people who are not economists don't follow economics that close, a bubble to them just might be like home prices dropped. But, you know, to you, a, a bubble means like it, it crashed back down to a level that it was at before. So the, the easy, yeah, the easiest way I could, I could say why this isn't a bubble. What you need to do if you're a bubble boy is that you need to convince American citizens that positive cash flow educated homeowners, people who are sitting in their homes for a very long time with very low mortgage rates, very positive cash flow, their payments are very good. They have no stress in their data. They have to willingly sell you their homes at a 40, 50, 60% discount to the market bid just to get out of housing because of the fear of collapsing demand or missing out, right? Uh, and, and that to me is, is a fascinating premise. Good luck with that, right? Uh, the problem I've always, I've, I've said about during this period is homeowners are doing well. I mean, that was the risk going into 2022. We wrote that article last October. The risk is inventory doesn't pick up and we started all over again. Guess what happened? We are in April. Inventory is down every single week this uh, 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 this year on a year-over-year basis. We need inventory to rise or stay flat, not go down double digits. Uh, and, and that was the risk for 2022. And it's happened, and it happened in a bigger fashion than I would like to see. Hence, why I'm team higher rates because nothing else is working. We absolutely have nothing else working right now. So what I'm hoping higher rates do is, number one, it creates more days on the market. That's what typically higher rates have done for us. They did it in 2013, 14. They did it in 2018. Higher, more days on markets give people choices. It gives a breather. Then what higher rates do is also cools the rate of growth of pricing. So we go back to the last two times. Mortgage rates rise. Home sales fall. Price of growth falls. It actually has never gone negative in 2013, 14, or in 2018, but it cools it down. That, to me, is the must in housing. Uh, so since it got really bad this year, that's why I think let higher rates do their thing because we don't want to sit here at these extreme low levels for another year. Uh, and unfortunately, it's it's we're in April right now, and we're still not seeing... Uh, anywhere close to even being flat on a year-over-year basis. So I'm hoping higher rates just creates more days on the markets, cools everything down. Inventory actually grows year-over-year. But the goal for me is always, until we could get back to 1.52 million to 1.93 million, which is historically low inventory, but it gets us off of this crazy housing market. That's that's where I'm at. Um, But if I was to say that housing is a bubble, I don't have to worry about it. Soon prices will crash 40, 50, 60%, and there'll be tons of inventory. People who are living wonderful in their house, they're gonna just say, hey, honey, let's all sell our homes and all rent for a higher cost. (laughs) But there's not much rental units out there. I don't care. You know, it's, it's think like an adult. Think like a normal human being. Don't think like a stock trader that got a margin call at 12.50 p.m., okay? So housing is different than stocks. And I think one of the things that you brought up in your article, which actually the Fed brought up in their article, the Dallas Fed, was that the 
like you said, homeowners are in such a different position. And so back back in the you know in the great financial crisis, what happened is people people were into arm products. So when when housing went down, then they were underwater. I in what situation right now would would someone be underwater in their home? I mean, there there technically actually are maybe a few people still left underwater, but uh, but let let me let me bring it back to two thousand five. The number one chart everyone should look at in terms of trying to compare this cycle to the uh, housing bubble years is housing peaked in 2005. In 2005, credit stress started to show itself. And what I mean by credit stress is people were filing for bankruptcies and foreclosures even when the economy was expanding. So in 2005, 2006, 2007, and 2008, bankruptcies increased, foreclosures increased, sales fell, inventory rose. None of that is happening. None of that has been happening since 2012 all the way to 2022. The reason why I wrote the America's Back Recovery Model on April 7th, it's like home, like household balance sheets look great. You know, the reason I wrote the forbearance crash bros are going to be wrong in the summer of 2020 Homeowners balance sheets look great. Everyone qualified for these loans. As soon as they get their jobs back, they're going to get off the program. They have. So we are talking about the two most different markets uh, in history. So we can't reflect back to that period of time because you basically need positive cash flow homeowners with lots of equity to foreclose on their house, to try to rent for a house. For, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense to how humans operate right here. So there are, there are different things that need to occur. Again, for me, it's I need higher rates to cool this down. If higher rates don't cool this down, then the Federal Reserve and the U.S. government has to think of creative ways to create inventory because it got worse this year, not better. Really great explanation. Thank you for that. Um, and you know, one of the things when we were going back and forth on the article, you're right. Was I was like, you need to be very clear. Do you think this is a bubble, or do you not think this is a bubble? And you're like, this is not a bubble, and here's why. And so um, I think that. Yeah. Would be- I, I, again, I, it's, it's lazy. It's just lazy talk. It's always been lazy talk. I mean, it's amateur hour. I mean, we've had we've had housing bubble talk for 11 years now. I mean, it's just listen. Prices are extremely unhealthy. Listen, I've I've never seen a more like unhealthy, savagely unhealthy housing market as we're seeing right now. But the premise that sales are going to decline in in such a high velocity and then people are going to like willfully like force themselves to sell their house to be homeless. It's no, it's (laughs) common sense. People just think like a normal human being. Okay. Don't think like Twitter trolls. The world, there's a whole world outside of social media where people are living their lives and doing their thing. <laughs> it does not resemble YouTube crash housing or Twitter crash house, whatever it is. It's been going on for 11 years, right? So a one trick pony is gonna be a one trick pony until they die. And even in the afterlife, I'm pretty sure they'll say the same thing. <laughs> we'll have to follow up somehow with that. But um, I do think that you know the speculation, the speculative nature of what happened the last time is just not present there here. And the other things you're looking at, as you said, you know, are do we, have we had a huge increase in bankruptcies and foreclosures? No. And, and, and something's funny with the speculation part. You know, people go, "Well, I buyers, I buyers are less than one percent of total home sales, right?" You know, when Zillow was getting out of the business, you know, last year, it was like, oh my God, Zillow has 8,000 homes. They're going to flood the market. You know, housing's going to cry. I mean, 
we are getting to the point of being so absurd that it's it's comical at this point, right? A, a, a sector of the speculative demand curve, whatever you want to call the iBuyers, is less than 1% of sales. So just even if you brought it down to zero, just adjust your sales trends to 0% iBuyers, right? And you're assuming that there's no mortgage buyers to step into. That's why I always say, the people that say Wall Street or iBuyers are holding up the housing market, they are the smallest portion of the home buyers out there. They are multiple bidding wars. That means the mortgage buyer is there. They need to find a home, right? That's why days on market needs to grow. If days on market was 30 to 45 days, we, we don't have any of these problems right now with price growth. Uh, so I, I just think that it, it became very apparent who the professionals were in this sector and who were the professional grifters. So. Well, we will continue to keep an eye on that. The other um, article you wrote for us last week was on inventory, which obviously you've mentioned that several times already in, in this um, discussion, and it is central to everything that's going on. It's why home prices are rising so much. We have huge demand. To your point, we have low inventory. So the, the name of that article, the headline was, Why Housing Inventory is So Low Right Now. So tell me, tell our listeners, why is housing inventory so low right now? <laughs> And, and this article is was written differently than the other articles I've talked about with inventory. It was to show why housing starts being so high has not put a dent uh, into uh, the inventory channel. So when we go back to 1996 to 2005, when we had the housing construction boom, did it cool down home prices? No. Did home prices accelerate in a very high way? Yes, it did. Uh, here we have housing starts, you know, uh, 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 at recent highs, inventory is falling, right? The total inventory that's created by new homes has never made a dent in the total existing inventory, uh, which has been falling since 2014. Because what the builders do is they only build based on where they think they could sell new homes. And their business model is at risk now, especially for uh, for all those homes that were in construction, uh, people were qualified for a 3% rate. If they now qualify for a 5%, guess what? They don't qualify anymore. Some of those people are, 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 are getting knocked off. Now, do the builders have buyers to come in that are eagerly waiting just to have a home? Okay, maybe, maybe they do, maybe they don't. But the builders don't oversupply a market because post-1996, they made it very evident to everyone that uh, they just build off of where the new home sales is. The existing home sales market is their major competitor. I mean, think about if you are having a war with your entire neighborhood um, and you're constantly giving your neighborhood more people to fight against you with. That's what the builders have done basically for four or five decades. Their major competitor is a cheaper, more massive existing home sales market. So inventory being at all-time lows there is a benefit to them because they say, hey, listen, if you make money, we've got a home here. It's good. So um, don't look for the builders to bail you out here on the inventory thing. It's something, it's been a big theme of my work for many years. Uh, I, I do not believe that the builders underbuilt in the previous expansion based on their business model. They only build off of what the demand curve is. And people forget we had missed sales in 2013, in 2014, and in 2015. And then 2018 came 5% mortgage rates. Builder stocks were down 30% plus. One of the builder CEOs said it's the worst fourth quarter since the great financial crisis, but they go drama really quick, by the way. And then they stalled construction for 30 days. 
So if rates gone up again, guess what? If they if they get hit, guess what they're going to do? They're going to stall construction because they don't build for that market. They build for themselves. And you know, pushing price growth that like they have since 2020, great for profit margins, but again, it's not sustainable in terms of and they understand this. They they know they know what to do. They're, they're managing their inventory channels as good as possible. But again, one of the reasons why I like higher rates is that we need a way to put sellers, uh, home builders, and investors on their ass. Because when these people have so much pricing power like they have, they're just thinking about themselves, right? And, that, and that's, that's what human beings do. They think for themselves, the benefit for themselves, selling that new home, selling their uh, product. So uh, there's no checks and balances when mortgage rates were under 4%. So hopefully this cools the market down because what we saw this year was worse than what we saw in 2020 and 2021. And if, if I believe I'll be right, that the rate of growth of pricing will cool and days on market will grow. Uh, but if it doesn't, again, this is why the credit control discussion has to be part of the equation, especially if we start 2023 at fresh new all-time lows. I think people were hating on you for those uh, credit control comments last week. Bring so. it, bring it, because <laughs> this, when, when, when prices get out of hand, like the Dallas Fed has said, uh, uh, checks and balances, balance, right? I believe in the balanced market. I, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'll go back to 2019. I was at an economics conference in 2019. Real home prices were negative that year. Days on market were over 30 days. I was smiling bigger than I usually do and said, even in the, uh, um, the chart that I put up uh, in front of the audience, I said, this is great news. We have a balanced market. It's awesome. People have choices. And then look what happened now, right? Chaos happened. Because why? Years 2020 to 2024 were going to be different. But the downside is sometimes different is not a good thing. And that's the market we're in right now. So we will keep an eye on that. We will keep an eye on uh, are we getting more days on market What and, and where are rates going to go? That's a whole other discussion. I did have two more topics I want to talk to you about, which are related to each other. So um, the the jobs report and the inverted yield curve. I mean, here, these are both your things. So first, let's talk about jobs. Yeah. Yes. Um, so the job report, solid, uh, uh, you know, over 400,000 jobs were created, uh, 95,000 jobs in revisions. And for me, going back to the America's Back Recovery model, you know, once once I retired that uh, model on December 9th, I said, one of the things that we have to be mindful is the jobs data is not going to recover as fast as some of the other data lines. But by September of 2022, by that point, we should have all the jobs back. Now, that was before Delta. That's before Omnichrome, uh, and we're working our way there. You know, I think we need about 271,000 jobs for the next six months. Uh, we're heading our way there. Once we get a little bit of free and clear action, boy, why? Because the internals of the jobs report was really good, uh, and job openings. As for my thing was that job openings will get over 10 million in this expansion. Guess what? It got there very quickly. So the internals are good. We're heading our way there. The labor market is much different now than what it was in the previous expansion. Like a lot of things are much different now uh, uh, than the previous expansion. But on to the second part, the inverted yield curve, right? Uh, now more people are, are starting to get this. For me, it's a little bit different because back in Thanksgiving of last year, I said, hey, everyone, I'm on inverted yield curve watch. Everyone's like, what? What? Wait a second. That's a bearish. I said, I'm, I've got my own models for this. I'm going to be on inverted yield curve watch until it happens. Now the, the inverted yield curve happened on the 210. It's, it's happened in different kind of things. 
Typically, what happens is stock traders are going to go doom and gloom porn for like until the end of the expansion because the inverted yield curve is their way to market whatever they're selling. Um, for me, it's a little bit different. It's part of the recession red flag model, right? It's number three. So that flag is raised. If we go back to the 2022 forecast, one of the things I've talked about, if global yields can rise, especially Japan and Germany, the 10-year yield could get to 2.42%. Part of that is the inverted yield curve happened below 2.42%. Now, I'm not going to like bore you with like really crazy economic bond yield model work. But as of this second, the two, the 10-year yield is at 2.36%. So it's come down a little bit. And the inverted yield curve will be a prominent headline talking point. This doesn't mean a recession is happening in two weeks, two months, or even two years. Uh, I had forecasted an inverted yield curve at the end of 2017 for 2018. I believe we inverted the yield curve in 2018. At no point was I on recession watch. The only time I was on recession watch in America was, hey, listen, the chaos theory that we wrote for Housing Wire. Listen, if if COVID comes, guys, this is going to just, you know, shut down the economy. We're going to go into recession, but don't overreact to it. Everyone overreacted to it. And but we recovered very fast. Same thing here. Right. Uh, um, I don't believe the 10 year yield has escaped velocity. So as the two year yields kept on rising, the two year yield is pricing in a lot of uh, Fed rate hikes. So naturally, the two to 210 was going to invert this year. So it has much like I thought in 2017 for 2018, different kind of backdrop then. So that's number three, recession red flag is up. The, the next three are the bigger ones, okay? So leading economic index, uh, it typically falls four to six months. COVID was the anomaly because COVID was a shock. Four to six months before every single recession, going back many decades. So you wanna keep an eye on that. That's a multiple data line sets coming in together. So it gives you kind of a heads up. Uh, it was positive last month. So again, the economy is still running fine. Housing starts, new home sales fade into every recession. So now that you have 5% mortgage rates, that sector is at risk. I talked about that, you know, I think two weeks ago here on Housing Wire. So that is something to keep an eye on. That will be a recession red flag if it falls out. Uh, and then numbers, the, the last one is where is the overinvestment in the economic cycle? Now, now that we're getting closer and closer, one of the things I tell people is durable goods, purchasing, retail sales, off the charts, crazy. I mean, I, 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 when I, if I had one day left to live, I, I would show everybody the durable goods purchasing during COVID. It's the most insane thing I've ever seen. Um, that's not going to be able to continue. So we have all this investment in trying to create more capacity for a really booming uh, economy and sales. I don't believe durable goods will keep that pace up. So we could get some deflationary factors over the next 18 months. We're starting to see some of that in the trucking data as well. So that's where you want to keep an eye on. Um, you know, all, all this money that went into ARC stocks, technology stocks, you know, that was another form of overinvestment, but that was more stock trading. We saw those stocks collapse very quickly. So again, that's that's a form of overinvestment, over capital crash. Peloton is a company that I use overinvestment capital in there, demand crash, too much supply, fire people. That's how you, that's how I talk about the kind of where's the overinvestment happening and the durable goods purchasing is just insane to me. So we're, we, we are a, the only economic superpower left in, in the world, but we're not a we're not a country that has like a booming economy in terms of uh, population growth and, and, and booming sales and wages takes off with the population growth. So there's limits to what we can do. 
So the next 18 months will be very interesting, especially if the Russian uh, invasion stops and oil prices start to come down too. So that's a different backdrop. We'll take it one day at a time, one week at a time, one month at a time. But yes, the third recession red flag is up. And that's three out of six, as you said. So um, keeping an eye out there. Uh, thank you so much. As always, Logan, very informative, also entertaining, interesting. Your new uh, I, I heard a new catchphrase in there about what you want to do for the investors and builders. Maybe you can uh, uh, say and that. Sellers, yeah, higher rates need to knock them on their ass because <laughs> we are just literally, oh, I, I cannot express to you what I saw in January, February, March was not a good thing. Uh, uh, there's just too, you know, when we talk about inflation, too much money chasing too few goods, housing inflation is too few homes, too many people, right? Uh, it's just a raw shortage of homes. Not a good thing, not a positive, savagely unhealthy housing market. And we have to find a way to fix this uh, because the price gains that happened in the first two years is way above my model. And I'm the guys, I need prices to go down for my model to work. I'm in trouble, I'm more trouble than anyone else, right? So uh, it is what it is. You, you have still to have a big smile variable. on your face though. We have to say that yeah. if people can't see you, like you still got a big smile on your face. I know that you see a lot of uh, good things happening. If but you're living in America, you should have a big smile on your face. So <laughs> end of story. I love it. Logan, thanks for being on. Appreciate you as always. Pleasure to be here, Sarah. According to a recent article on the Great Resignation by MIT Sloan Management Review, more than 40% of all employees were thinking about leaving their jobs at the beginning of 2021. And that figure only grew as the year went on. So how are leaders finding ways to retain valued employees? Or maybe you're even asking these questions as a leader yourself. Step one to addressing this, empowering team members to take ownership of their professional growth. This is why we've invited leadership coach and author Renee Rodriguez to join us for this HV Plus virtual masterclass. Think of this class as a one-stop shop on what you need to know to take your leadership to the next level. Go to housingwire.com to learn more and register. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.